Good morning to each of you. It's good to see you this glorious Lord's Day that we have been given, even a little bit on the muggy side and a little on the warm side, uh, but still very mild compared to what the rest of the country is going through. Today, we will begin another minor prophet. We're going to begin Zephaniah, not Zechariah, Zephaniah. So if you want to find your place towards the end of your Old Testament and turn to Zephaniah. We had just spent three weeks in the book of Nahum, and there, the, the prophecies are somewhat similar in that they're both around the same time, the 630 to 640 B.C. However, Nahum was directed to one city. Do you remember? Nineveh and the destruction that was going to come to Nineveh, which in fact did happen some years later. Zephaniah's message is to Judah primarily. God's chosen people, the northern tribes, have already been taken into captivity. Judah would go to captivity at 586, of which this book prophesies about, but that had not yet happened yet. And so the message to repent, to return, and to hear of the goodness of the Lord resounds throughout the letter. Of all the minor prophets, though, Zephaniah probably gets the the bad academic press. Uh, He's been labeled by uh, as, as being dull or, or uh, repetitive and th- these kinds of things. But I submit to you that there's much to learn for us today, even in this Old Testament book written some 2,600 years ago. And you can see the work that's on me that I have to bring that out. So you can pray over the next several weeks that we will glean everything that the Lord would have us to hear There's a sense in which Zephaniah, being one of the latter minor prophets, assumes that you've already read some of the other minor prophets. We're not going in order. We're going, we're we're, we're kind of skipping around ourselves. But having set the context for Nahum, there's there's an assumption that 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 is true. In fact, there's 12 minor prophets, and they, they can fall into two groups. You have the first nine, which are prophesied before the Babylonian captivity, and often warn of that, that what's coming. And then you have the three that for the exiles as they are coming out of uh, captivity. Well, Zephaniah, along with Habakkuk, would be in that first group, but towards the latter part of that. In other words, only 20, 30 years to when that captivity would actually happen. The two major themes in the book are judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation. And judgment is something that is not popular in our day. Our postmodern society does not want to hear that there is some deity somewhere that's going to judge you for your behavior. It it, it rubs against the flesh. It, it, It doesn't fit right. Because why? Because the world thinks that I'm on my own throne and I'm leading my own life and I don't have to answer to anybody. Our pluralistic society would laugh at such things And by the way, that's rampant today, just as it was in Zephaniah's day. We need preachers like Zephaniah. We need preachers that have a a desire and a boldness for the truth and to proclaim the truth and to not be swayed by the publicity crowds and the, the statistics, but to stick to the truth and to preach God's message for God's glory and for the salvation of His people. We need preachers like Zephaniah that takes the word and applies it to the various groups of people living in Judah. We need fathers who will take the word of God and 
apply that word to their children, right? When they're walking in the way and, and, and before and during the day and, 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 and instructing their children. We need husbands that are washing their wives with the word. We need brothers and sisters together sharpening one another, encouraging one another while it is called today so that we might grow strong and live in a way that honors the Lord. We are only going to have time to introduce the book and really just look at the first three verses. And so if you still are in Zephaniah, let's read the first three verses and then we'll pray and we'll get started. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things. Um, ESV as a better translation, sweep away all things. And this occurs three times. In the song we just sung, there was a sweeping away mentioned. Verse 2, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that we would have a sense of your presence this very day. Lord, that even as Zephaniah had a word from the Lord, Lord, that your word would go forth very clearly today. Lord, that each one would hear what you would have him or her to hear, including the young children. And Lord, I pray that we would have a sense of the presence of Christ as he walks amongst the lampstands, as as he walks amongst the true churches. Lord, that we would leave as it were a changed people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Book of Zephaniah breaks into three parts, which will probably be the substance of our next three messages. From chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, 3 is a message to Judah about the coming judgment. And we'll look in particular at these couple of verses here. From 2, 4 to 3, 8, it's a message of judgment to the surrounding nations, but also with glimmers of hope sprinkled in to the surrounding nations around Judah. And 3, 9 to 20, is the anticipation of restoration, of the coming of salvation, God's mighty blessing upon the people of God. Zephaniah challenges us in the culture that we live. He challenges unbelief. He he, he sets forth a view of God that that is a balanced view of God. He's he's, He's a God that is just and will dispense judgment, but at the same time, He is a loving Savior to His people. Consider just a couple of verses as we look in chapter 3 and verse 8. The end of that second section. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation and all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured and my, by the fire of my zeal. You see that strong message to the surrounding nations. You're going to be judged for the wickedness that you do and for the idolatry that you've tripped up my people in Judah. But then look down at verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. 
Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord has taken away his judgments against you, and he has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. And notice this, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I hope you get the picture here. This God of intense judgment that will absolutely wipe out the earth in that day of the Lord, that will wipe out those nations in time, in real time, but at the same time, this incredible love. There, there's something that's very powerful when we, when we think about God exulting over His people. Delighting in His people. That is something that gives me goosebumps because of, as I'm thinking about it, I'm aware of my own sin. I don't deserve that. It's Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to us that makes us acceptable before a holy God. Of course, our postmodern culture, as I said, looks at God's wrath and judgment as something completely distasteful. It, this is the age of tolerance. <laughs> they, they, they tolerate anything except for intolerance, right? <laughs> Towards tolerance. There's another message there by way of introduction I want to mention. Notice, even from the very verses that I just read, that there is a zeal for Almighty God to protect His covenant people to be their defender, to be their divine warrior, as we talked about uh, through Nahum. And, and, and that comes out in this book as well. And again, you transfer that to today. And you think of the persecuted church. Do you realize there's been more martyrs in the Christian church in the last 100 years than in the last 1900 combined? Do you realize 2013 alone was marked by some of the most blatant, in your face persecution against Christians that's nation of worldwide news and governments are slumbering nobody's stepping in I mean think of in Syria over what was that the summer I think of this last year those Christians were being slaughtered the the uh, the slaughter that took place there Pakistan the largest slaughter that has ever happened happened in September of course, we know well about Iran and North Korea. Even Kenya, the Nairobi Mall um, massacre that happened there was directed towards non-Muslim Christians. And as they were mutilated and cut into pieces and gouged out with their eyes and their noses and all of that, the stuff that didn't quite make it this far west but actually really happened in that terrible massacre. And for us, sometimes we can say, Lord, do you not see? Are you asleep? Are you, Lord, are you that patient that you're waiting to right that wrong? Yes, he is. He's intensely patient. He's intensely long-suffering. And we know that they will give an account as the nations gather together in an uproar, as Psalm 2 says, the people devise a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. What does it go on to say? He who sits in heaven laughs as though these governments are going to do something that's going to affect God's plan. It's not going to happen. 
God is completely sovereign all over all these things. Well, let's return back to chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's consider the man and the message of Zephaniah. When we read a book, it's natural to want to know something about the author. And it may be speculation. I don't think it's that much going out on a limb. But it appears that Zephaniah came from a godly home. His name means the Lord is hidden, as the name of God is within his name. The Lord is hidden. He's the only minor prophet to... um, my knowledge, that gives this extensive of a genealogy. Like, and and then he mentions, notice how he says, he goes back, 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 all the way to Hezekiah. Now, he doesn't say King Hezekiah, so there's some debate as to, well, Hezekiah was a very common name. Is this just some other uh, Hezekiah? Or is he going back that far to say, I may be obscure, but I've got some credibility. I go back a ways. I'm connected. And there's some other reasons why I think this is King Hezekiah as well. I think it's likely that he himself was part of the royal family. The palace was the seat of government then, and his association with the palace would enable him to have first-hand knowledge of the wickedness that was going on in Judah. And he addresses these particular groups, as we'll see next week. He addresses the king's sons or the princes. He addresses the corrupt priesthood and the idolatrous priests, as they're mentioned in verse 4. He addresses the judges and the civil leaders and even the merchants. And so to have some kind of firsthand knowledge there is certain. He was most likely born during the reign of King Manasseh. If you remember, you are kings. Maybe you don't. Uh, this was a very wicked king. Uh, the days in which he was born were terrible. Ironically, according to Second uh, Chronicles 33, apparently at the very end of his life, he had an incredible conversion and turned to the Lord, and the Lord forgave him. But all of his days, he, sp- he, he promoted idolatry, he, promoted, uh, he, he killed his own people. I mean, he was, he was absolutely wicked. So that it would say in Second Kings, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides his sin, with which he made Judah sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. What a commentary on one's life. <laughs> he shed so much blood that it filled all the Jerusalem, and, and he's just so full of sin, and he's just he did evil in the sight of the Lord. These were dark days. Okay, These were days in dire need of reformation. Think of other times when God's people are persecuted so much. Think of the underground church in China in the last hundred years. What happens? There's growth, right? There, there's, the church has grown so big in China because of persecution. Persecution fuels growth. Or think in Cambodia during the genocide in the late 70s from that communist government. Remember the killing fields, these mass graves? This communist government killed, the estimates are all over, but one to two million of its own people. Absolutely remarkable to think about. It is said and estimated that there were 12,000 Christians when this began and there was 2,000 left at the end. 
Well, obviously, <clears throat> things have changed there substantially. God preserves his remnant. And today, just in the last couple of decades, there's 130,000 Christians and 2,000 churches. So from 2,000 Christians estimated to 2,000 churches, small churches, mind you, but still, that's an incredible thing. Persecution weeds out the chaff and also is used by God to drive people to Christ. And then notice what he says. He, 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 he sprinkles this in. In the days of Josiah. Now, we know Josiah's a good king. He's a good guy, right? If you want to look for names, you know, you don't want... How many Manassas do you see? Okay? <laughs> now, Josiah, you know, there's, it's, it's more, more common, uh, for sure. He was a good guy. He was the boy king. He was, he was crowned at eight years old. And about ten years later, that's when the, the revivals, the reformations began as they discovered that book of the law that was lost for all that time during the previous kings. Now, there's some debate as to when exactly is Zephaniah writing, and it, he doesn't say in the year, this year I wrote. Um, was it after the reforms were beginning under Josiah, or was it just before? And I tend to think it was just before. I think maybe the Lord may have used this prophecy as one of the things that he used to help bring that about, along with the discovery of the book of the law. His message, he says very clearly, the very first few words, the word of the Lord which came. It's literally which, which it was, is. It's the to be verb in the Hebrew. So the word of the Lord became him. I mean, he, 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 it came to him in a powerful way. Many of the prophets begin their prophecies like that. Jeremiah 1.4, now the word of the Lord came to me saying, etc. And New Testament writers make the same claim. Think of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. He writes to that church and says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you have heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. That apostolic confirmation that this is the very word of God. He'll tell the Corinthians in chapter 2, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. We know the test of a true prophet, Deuteronomy 13 and 18. If you don't know those texts, you can read those later. But it simply says that if somebody prophesies something and it doesn't come to pass, now you know that that's a false prophet. And you don't get, well, I had a bad day, I get to try again. Like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses keep making dates and other, you know, herald camping, you know. Well, 94 wasn't right, 88 wasn't right, let's do that. You know, it's, it's not like that. You're a false prophet, period. But his prophecy came to pass. Much of what we read here actually, actually did happen when the Babylonians would come in and invade Judah and destroy the temple and haul the people off into captivity. There's some intense and extreme language here. Definitely, I think, goes beyond that. Um, uh, the 586 B.C., for example, the couple of verses we're going to look at briefly, speak of that last and great final day, the day of the Lord, the end, when God says that is enough to the entire planet. 
He speaks of that great and final judgment. I mean, it makes it very clear. I will completely sweep away all things from the face of the earth. That's pretty universal and pretty complete, isn't it? It's, it's not just Judah. It's the whole earth. You say, well, that's not very uplifting. <laughs> well, the, th- the part that should be uplifting is our God does not change. He is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he remains the perfect, righteous judge that can do nothing wrong whatsoever. He rules the universe in perfection. He is, he's, he's guided by wisdom, and, 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 and he's all-knowing and all-powerful. This is the God that each of us will stand before. This is the God that will not tolerate sin today, just like he did not back in the 6th century B.C. His message applies to us today because that final and great day, uh, that, that day, the message is clear. Seek the Lord. Repent of your sin. Turn to the Lord. And prote- perhaps you will be protected. Isn't that what he says in 2.3 at the end of those judgments to Judah? But seek the Lord, all the humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so that message goes out. And we know also in the New Covenant that this day of the Lord can come at any time. Right? Now, doesn't Jesus himself use that analogy as a thief in the night? And here, 1 Thessalonians 5.2, Paul writes to them because there was some disagreement in Thessalonica. Uh, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. That means is you can't predict it. You can't turn on Noah weather and, and get a prediction. It's, <laughs> you don't know when it's going to happen. But we know this in verse 2, the day of the Lord is unavoidable. We've already read it a couple of times. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. As many of the prophets, Zephaniah's message is largely, as I said, speaking of that Babylonian captivity, but obviously this is prefiguring, as do many of the prophecies, that great and final day of the Lord. The word he uses here, you notice it's three times. If you have the NAS, three times the word remove. The ESV has sweep away. It's actually two Hebrew words that mean to completely and utterly annihilate, to completely wipe out and to completely remove. It's very, very strong language. It's not something that can be confused, okay? It's very, very strong. Come to complete ruin, a complete end, to annihilate. You know, when God says that judgment is coming here, this is through the word of the Lord, it's not like a weather forecast that there's an 80-90% chance, like the blizzard on the east coast, that that Maine will get a foot of snow. There's an 80% chance. There's an 85% chance that judgment really will come, but, you know, no, 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 right? Of course not. That's absurd. It, it is absolutely certain because God has said it. And the message of judgment affects each one of us. It causes us to look inward. How will I fare on that day when I stand before the Lord? When I give an account, Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It will absolutely happen. God cannot lie. He cannot go against His very character. Even though the writer of the Hebrews says these two unchangeable things, 
in which it is possible for God to lie, impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. But you can already hear the objectors. Maybe you'll go and share this with a co-worker tomorrow that's not a believer. That's not fair. What do you mean he's going to wipe out all things? What? That's Well, wait a minute. There's a lot of good people in the world. Why would he do that? I mean, how do you know you're good? Well, because I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure the good outweighs the bad. Well, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever, you know, you're, 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 sinner, you're a sinner, you're doomed. There are many who claim that the judgment of God is unjust. They see themselves as innocent. They see others, that they, they're very quick to calculate the others that are worse than themselves. Why? So that they, it kind of makes them look good, right? James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on the Minor Prophets, gives an illustration of a gangster in New York City. Two-Gun Crawley was his name. He was very cruel. He would shoot people for no reason whatsoever. He went on a three-month crime spree. An officer came to his car door, this is in the 30s, asked to see his license, pulled out a gun, shot him dead, got out, shot him five more times, no remorse whatsoever, just went around murdering crime spree. Finally, there's a two-hour shootout with the New York City police. He holds him off that long, but he's finally captured and goes to Sing Sing Prison. Well, he would be executed six months later in the electric chair, but they found a note that read this. Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. So this man, who is 19 years old, he was executed at 20, actually thought he was a kind man and he would never hurt anybody. Now, what does that tell us? Our hearts are deceived. (laughs) Our hearts lie to us. And if you're sitting here today, we have a lot of visitors that we're glad that you're here, but if you're sitting here today, but wait a minute, I am a good person. You need to stand in front of the mirror and hold God's law up because we have all sinned. The only way we can be good is once we come to Christ. And then we have a new nature by which we can go and do those things which glorify God. But until then, our our hearts are corrupt. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, this situation of protesting innocence is very common in Zephaniah's day as well. He addresses the priests and uh, the princes, the merchants. He speaks of religious activity and social trading and all of that. And the people would see themselves as guiltless, but he would say guilty. So the day of the Lord is unavoidable, but secondly, it is universal. In verse 3, I will remove man and beast, I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Notice that the entire creation is going to be destroyed. Excuse me. Romans 8 and verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. You see, when man sinned in the garden and sin spread to all men, there's a sense in which the creation fell as well. The creation groans, longing to be restored. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Sinful man 
The problem is he takes the things that are good in creation and perverts them, right? Think of idolatry, all the means in which you can erect idols and all of that. The language that is used here in Zephaniah is very similar to what God says uh, concerning Noah. Genesis 6-7, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals and creeping things to the birds of the sky. I am sorry that I made them. Now, even here, there's no reference to fish in the, in the Noah situation, and we know that there was a remnant preserved, right? Right? Noah and his family were preserved to repopulate the earth. There's no mention of any survivors here. I will completely remove all things, and the very first thing that's removed is man, then beast, then birds, then fish. If you know your creation account well, Genesis 1, flip that order reverse. Man was created last, then beast, and the birds and the fish. So it's, it's, that's why I've entitled it what I've entitled it. This com- genera- a cre- creation unraveled and swept away. Because it's like this unraveling of creation. The created order. He creates in this order, but as he uncreates, as it were, destroys, it, it goes back. It's like a wool sweater that's the threads are starting to come off and and you keep pulling it and it just completely unravels. That's the picture that we have here before us. But there's one last thing I want to mention before we end. This judgment comes from a personal God. Okay? The judge is not some impersonal power. He takes responsibility to seeing that justice is done and that the wicked are punished. Psalm 111 and verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in Him. Verse 7, The works of His hands are truth and justice, and all His precepts are sure. The God of Zephaniah, furthermore, is revealed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. You all know John 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was God was with God and the word was what God The God of Zephaniah is very much pictured in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ it goes on to say and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory study the gospels study the life of Christ study all of his works And his atoning death especially is a demonstration of the justice and the love of God. The two primary messages of Zephaniah are set forth so clearly in the cross. Well, just a couple of points of application. We have only begun to start considering this wonderful book. We will go at a much faster pace uh, beginning next time, God willing. But how does this apply to us? We need to be ready. We need to make sure that we're right before God, that we're truly trusting in the finished work of Christ and not thinking that all of our good works is going to earn a spot in heaven. We need to live in light of the reality that you could stand before God today answering for your sins and how you lived your life. It's a frightening thing if you're unprepared. 
and then consider the compassion of Jesus. As you think of Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry, right before the Olivet Discourse, <clears throat> he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see that weeping over Jerusalem? How often I wanted to gather you, but you were unwilling. You were stubborn in your sin. And maybe there's someone here today that's, that's stiff-necked that's stubborn and does not want to bow the knee and submit to Christ and confess Him as your only way to be saved and to be seen acceptable before God. I've already mentioned it. The love and the justice of God are so beautifully set forth in the cross of Christ. Paul writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, he says in verse 19 of chapter 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Reconciliation is a beautiful thing. If you've been alive any amount of time, you know that you have conflict with your spouse, your co-worker, your siblings, even your young children. You have conflicts, right? You know what it means to, be, to have the relationship broken, but then when it's restored, right? That's reconciliation. Well, our relationship before God has been broken by our sin. And, and He's come to reconcile us, but we must come on His terms, not bringing our good works, simply trusting in Jesus Christ and believing that He died for your sins on the cross. He goes on to say that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. That is Jesus Christ, the, the One who was sinless His whole life, the One that is perfect, the One that endured huge amounts of abuse, and physical torture was sinless, but He made Him to be the sin offering for us. Why? This is beautiful. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's good news. That's good news. That's called imputation. That's what theologians use. Our sin was imputed to Christ's account as He died on the cross. Jesus paid for all the sins of all of His people. But Christ's righteousness and sinless life has been imputed to me so that when God looks at me, He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's wonderful news. That's good news. If you're a stranger to this Christ, if you've never called out to Him, may today be the day of salvation. You know not how many more days you have on this earth. Come to Him today. Let us pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for all of Your Word. Not just the popular text, Lord. We thank You for even this minor prophet that perhaps some have never even read or studied before. Lord, I pray that the message of Zephaniah would come clear to us. And Lord, most of all, that we would see that message beautifully displayed in the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You so much for our Lord and Savior. We thank You for His work in our lives. 
We thank you that his salvation is effectual, that it can never be lost, that no one will snatch us out of his hand. Lord, we rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.